How often do we hear the word localization these days? Does the word localization have the same meaning to everyone? Has it been overused in the aid sector so often without meaningful action that it's lost its true meaning and purpose? How can we make sure the most vulnerable and in need and the local and national responders closest to them get to shape the way aid is planned, distributed and accounted for? Elevated local voices and responding to the lived experiences that they share has been on the agenda for the humanitarian sector for many years. What people hoped would be a watershed moment was the World Humanitarian Summit. But system change failed to happen, and only frustration about inaction followed. I'm Beth Eggleston, and this is I Think You're On Mute. In this episode, we'll look at the production of knowledge in the humanitarian sector, and whether we, as a sector, are elevating local voices and walking the talk on localisation. I recently caught up with Pamela Combinito, a researcher with Humanitarian Advisory Group based in the Philippines, on the production of knowledge in the humanitarian sector. Pam, so you do a lot of work looking at accountability to affected populations and analysing the power dynamics in the humanitarian sector. Tell us about the citation analysis that you recently worked on and some of the key findings from it. Yeah, thanks, Beth. The citation analysis findings is um, so interesting when you also look at the issues of accountability to affected population and power inequalities in the sector because ultimately when you're producing knowledge in the sector, the question is always for whom and by whom, right? So the citation analysis, it's such a fancy (laughs) phrase, uh, but basically the idea is we wanted to just understand like who are the most valued resources or who are the actors whose knowledge are valued in the sector, like basically who are usually the authors of the, the reports that we are reading and the and all those publications that are some, somehow informing our work. Can we look at all those publications in the sector? Like not all, but a, a select number of publications in the sector and see like um, our global north, south, global north and South institutions collaborating in these pieces of work. And very interestingly, um, it really just... We we thought of just finding a way. How could we, uh, how could we build that picture? Like who who are the actors involved in the production of, of these materials in the sector? And we also had an idea about this because a lot of research reports have been saying that there are power inequalities in the way we produce knowledge as well in the sector. For example, local and in, indigenous knowledge are sidelined or not are li- are used very limitedly in the sector and we wanted to test how this also played out in select documents um, in the sector so we examined three sets of documents a total of 30 um, materials and we really looked closely and so I tried to see how things are playing out in terms of authorship, the language use, um, who are the actors involved in the data collection process, in the analysis, and and, and, the, and somehow the dissemination of the material. So we looked closely at these 30 materials and then compiled at over a thousand references to see, okay, when you are reading this particular report, who are they citing and are they publishing this material in the language of the country context that they are studying? So it was so interesting because um, what we found was confronting, but it wasn't sur- surprising for us. The authorship in all the three sets of documents were exclusively led 
by global north institutions and very limited global south and north collaboration. Um, the sector does not share information in languages relevant to the country context that they are studying. And we are also seeing that expertise from global south is neglect neglected, both in terms of published sources and in terms of um, the production process. And when you look closely at where they are visible, it's usually in the primary data collection process. And we, we think these roles are extremely important. Global South actors are facilitating access to crisis-affected communities. They are translating information to make it accessible to English language-speaking audience. However, there is notable absence in other areas of the production process, like the authorship, the analysis, etc. And of course, one of the key questions that we need to ask is why and what's the impact of this in the way we understand the problems and solutions to humanitarian crisis that we're facing today. This is so interesting, Pam, because I think that you know, so many humanitarian workers that you know, and, and, you know, as a humanitarian researcher, we all have so many piles of reports and articles and documents that we're really keen to read. How often do we actually sit down and think about who wrote these? How did they generate this knowledge? So the research found that the sector hasn't localised how it generates knowledge. So what, what does this, what does this really mean? I think um, that localist, localised knowledge somehow, um, is linked to that localization discussion. And what we're seeing is that the authorship in all the key sets of documents um, is almost exclusively led by Global North institutions. So when you look at um, the Grand Bargain reports, um, the evaluation of Rohingya response, and also the response plans in Asia and the Pacific, most of these reports are exclusively authored by Global um, North institutions. Out of the um, all out of the materials, only two or seventeen percent are actually published by Global South institution. So that number is somehow depressing. Um, but of course, there's a, a number of materials that are also published by Global South institutions. But in these spaces where the intention is to collectively understand like the problems, the priorities of the sector, understanding of reform, understanding of how the sector is performing in response. Where do the voices of Global South actors come in? Why are they not visibly represented in these documents? That, that were the questions that we're asking. And we feel that it's important to ask because now the sector is reflecting on and have made progress around facilitating local leadership in the humanitarian response. And that's important. But we also have to ask, how do we make sure that we are also we are also producing knowledge um, and valuing the expertise of communities and researchers from societies affected by conflict, by crisis, by global inequality, and how their expertise can guide humanitarian action, producing knowledge for them um, and by them. So those are some of the key reflections that we had. And we feel that's, that the local, localizing humanitarian knowledge has also very much linked to our discussion of localization agenda in the sector. Yes. And the accessibility of knowledge is a big piece here too, isn't it? I mean, the sector also doesn't share information in languages relevant to country context often. I mean, what's the impact of that? Yeah, that's a really good question. And um, in terms of impact, 
of course, we can draw from some of the experiences and the things that we've seen. But just think about it. Out of the 30 materials, only one have translated their report in the context or in the language of the country context. And when you look at the reference list, only 6% of all the materials that they've cited are actually available in other language. And when you look which language it is, it's mostly the language of the United Nations like in European languages and mostly Spanish and um, French. So I think one of the key questions we need to ask is what insights are being missed due to the linguistic range of sources being so narrow. Um, and of course, English is also an official language in some countries in Asia and the Pacific, but the bias to publish in English can also be linked to discussion of ethics, of accountability, and reporting back the findings to communities and stakeholders who were consulted. And I think what that's what the knowledge is ultimately for. And you've talked about this tiny, tiny percentage of the citations, the, the articles and documents that you mentioned being from the Global South. So is it like finding a needle in a haystack, trying to find a citation with references and active from the Global South? And what steps do we take to change this and to actually change the way in which we can, we can access and, and learn about what you were saying, the actual important insights that are currently being missed? Yeah, yes, that's exactly the way we're seeing things. It's like needles in a haystack. The question of what needs to change can also be paraphrased in a way by asking what are the conditions that are actually perpetuating the underrepresentation of Global South actors in the knowledge production process. And um, we, we know as a researcher that we are also confronted with a lot of constraints. There are so many established processes that we have to go through. And we are very much empathetic about these real constraints that people are going through in the production of these processes. And in fact, in some of our interviews with donor agencies and those who are who are part of the production of these materials, they really underscored these real resource constraints and the difficulty of um, navigating those established ways of working that do not really encourage equitable roles for Global South actors. So for example, one particular important document here is the terms of reference that we all know um, and read in very much detail to understand what's, what's the scope of work, what's the limitation, what's the budget. And we've seen some good practices here where donor agencies would allow researchers, both from Global North and Global South, to actually feedback on the TOR and say, look, uh, we need to just challenge your timeline here. It's not feasible. Look, we need additional budget for this. And I think your budget is too limited. So those spaces or those particular moments when TORs um, do not necessarily just um, constrain researchers and there's an opportunity to feedback to say, can we change the terms of reference a bit? Because if you are doing this, we need to, to do some steps around um, some of the resourcing timeline, etc. One of the things that we also wanted to highlight, although it's not very obvious, um, is the relational aspect of the production process. And a lot of our interviewees um, really highlighted the challenge of finding connections with 
um, with researchers from different country contexts. And that's a real challenge. They have reflected um, that, of course, it's so hard to break away from the usual global North contractors because we just it's just so hard to find a researcher um, who has the expertise we need. But when you ask Global South researchers, they would say, it's an easy process. You just have to li- Google. You just have to check LinkedIn. But y- yes, that's important. But the underpinning that process is the trust and relationship element. And that takes time. That That's something that you cannot do, you know, like in a transactional way. And, and investing in the relational aspect of research partnerships is so, so in- essential to shifting these inequalities um, that currently affect the knowledge sector. So these are some of the entry points to like changing the way things are. But fundamentally, those powerful actors in the sector really have to ask these important questions and, 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 and ask about what's their role and responsibility in achieving a more localized research, like being so reflexive around these conditions that they have institutionalized, what are some of the incentives that they can provide to encourage more global north-south collaboration? And how can they revisit some of the time frames, some of the skill sets that they require in the work that they ask researchers to do? I think those are some important steps that can be done. And some actors are actually starting to recognize that. Oh, that's so good to hear, Pam, because it sounds like there's many different levels of challenges here. We've, we're talking about as you mentioned, the resources to actually produce and develop some of this research. But not only that, it's when sometimes it's, it is developed, it's not being valued within the sector. So some of it is there, but it's not being, uh, is not being heeded, is not being utilised properly. The Grand Bargain committed the humanitarian sector to recognising all voices in informing knowledge and evidence. Yet the production of knowledge in the humanitarian sector has been largely forgotten until recently. I spoke with Leanne Robinson and Iris Lowe from CoLab in Fiji about their work to advance localization. At the heart of why CoLab was born was, was the belief that, you know, the development and humanitarian sector was perpetuating this idea or the generalized notion that, you know, international consultants can lead uh, or only international consultants can lead in, in knowledge production and in programming in development and also in the humanitarian response sector. You know, that local actors, we don't have the adequate knowledge or a high level of education skills and ability to take the driver's seat um, in research, in monitoring and evaluation, in programming project designs, humanitarian response program, or even taking the lead in senior roles in, in organizations. And that's where Liane and I's experience lies. So CoLab is about saying, give local practitioners a chance. Um, It's about demonstrating that local actors have the potential to engage through genuine partnerships when given the space and also opportunities and and the support. Leanne, what about you? Thanks, Beth. Um, So I think to acknowledge, you know, that localization is already happening. I mean, we have Pacific communities who are driving their own development on a daily basis eh, from government to community levels. Um, And that is localization in action eh, in its truest form. Uh, But for me, it's about transformation uh, of hearts and minds, you know, that that, that people who are decision makers and power holders in acknowledging first that there is a power imbalance, that there is this uh, inequality 
and appreciating the value experience of local people eh? and then transforming their systems and processes to enable that local leadership to come through. So it is about supporting and equipping uh, national and local actors to take up that leadership. It is also about co-responsibility because there's a lot of work to be done and we all need each other. And I think it's about sharing the space and shifting and sharing the power so that the leadership of humanitarian action, development, places local communities at the forefront eh? with international and external actors supporting that to happen. So in the work uh, we do as CoLab, you know, as Iris said, it, it's about partnering with like-minded organizations and people that hold the same values and principles and views of localization uh, to us. So organizations that work with us as Pacific-based consultants, as women, uh, in a different and transformative way. Thanks, Leanne. And just to pick up on that, we're talking about um, the elevation of local voices and the work that you do has been really key in this. I mean, it, Colab are really seen as, as the leaders in this space in many ways. And I just wondered if, if there's a sense of pressure. Um, I mean, I, I know the two of you have been incredibly busy and in working on so many different projects in, in relation to this idea. But I wondered if there is sort of pressure being at the, the forefront, you're, you're carving out new ground. You know, is there a pressure to sort of represent the views of local actors in Fiji and, um, and how you deal with that? Yes, I think, you know, it's a real privilege to be in this, this position uh, and the journey that we're on as, as CoLab uh, and one that we don't take lightly. Eh? Uh, working as local researchers, as local consultants, we are emerging, you know, establishing ourselves. And with that, we know we carry the, the stories, the views of our communities here in Fiji and in the Pacific, eh? who we have the privilege to speak with through our research. Uh, and drawing from our own experiences from, from Fiji. So I think there's, there's an element of pressure, um, you know, as, as local researchers, as consultants, uh, to show that we have the cap capacity and capability to do this, uh, to do this, this, this role and, and to do research and knowledge production. Uh, and with that, you know, it's an opportunity to, to weave in our Pacific ways of, of doing research, an opportunity to bring that and amplify that into what we usually know as you know, knowledge production being quite Western and influenced by different standards. Yeah? So bringing that to, to show as well. I mean, the localization idea, the whole concept really must go back to being accountability, having accountability to people who have been impacted by any kind of crisis. So I'd, I'd love to get your thoughts on that. How as a sector can we be more effective to those communities who have been impacted by disasters? Um, the humanitarian sector has really made significant progress in, in recent years. Um, and there's lots of evidence of um, organizations engaging with communities. Um, I think, however, there's, there's much more that needs to be done in terms of coordinating efforts then to, to better engage with local um, communities. And it's not just all about in the box and saying that we're consulting with local communities and everyone goes into overwhelmed communities. It's about how to better coordinate our efforts and what are we doing, or documenting what are we doing to respond to the feedback from communities or from affected communities and how we're, the flexibility in our program, redesigning our programs to ensure that we're genuinely meeting needs of local um, or affected communities. I mean, absolutely. Yeah? Uh, accountability is about power. 
So as humanitarian actors, you know, generating knowledge products that are shaped, uh, informed by local voices, uh, including the people that we seek to assist, is one way the sector can show it is using its power responsibly, yeah? uh, listening in a genuine and meaningful way to people, to communities, uh, tell their stories and experiences. And what they want to see change yeah? is, is, all, is an important part of uh, enabling that reciprocity and respect for self-determination, which are key principles as well for us in the Pacific yeah? of affected people linked to localization. So it's about making you know, knowledge production feel like and look like it's written uh, with affected people in mind, uh, with that audience in mind. One thing we've learned is that the silencing of local voices isn't limited to particular geographies. Many local organisations are emerging to combat this trend, like the Institute of Innovation for Gender and Humanitarian Transformation in Bangladesh, I spoke with Suman Asanul from the Institute. So Suman, thank you so much for joining us. It's been such a pleasure for HAG to be involved and collaborating with Insights and all the fabulous work that you do in Bangladesh. So we're keen to understand a bit from, from your side, Suman, in terms of the context in which you're operating in. Uh, and you've been involved in all major disasters in Bangladesh in the last 25 years. So you have a wealth of experience that we'd love to tap into. So I'd love to firstly ask you about some reflections on how local leadership has evolved over the last, say, 20 years. And, yeah, has that become more complicated? What are your views on, um, on where it's come from in the last 20 years and where it's headed? Yes, the context, if I tell you, I'm working in Bangladesh for the last 25 years, particularly in disaster risk management and humanitarian actions. And uh, when I started my career, it was disaster risk reduction and humanitarian uh, work was more like of uh, amateur style, I would say, how this is now as a professional skill and professional area of competencies, it was not that structured or that professionals and every professional everything. We are more of informal um, group of uh, people working with international organization responding to humanitarian emergencies and, and things. If I, if I remember uh, the, my very first work as a volunteer when I was only like 18 years old and uh, it was 1998 flood in Bangladesh. It was a huge flood. Um, most of the country, including the capital city, was underwater for more than three to four weeks. That was my first involvement in a, as, a, as a volunteer, as a very amateur young boy in disaster emergency work. And I would say it was a it was a great fun for us actually. We we a group of boys living in a kind of a very minimum uh, structure, doing a lot of work, very stressful, working a lot in the rural um, the rural areas of Bangladesh, particularly in the char areas. Anyway, as a kind of the professional work, if I say as a as a job, I started work in 1995 flood with Oxfam. And, um, and there were funding from different international uh, bilateral donors, including DFID, European Union, OSAID, uh, OSAID, and Oxfam was implementing flood relief and rehabilitation program with, with local partners. 
and that's where I would, I would now link with where the localization coming in. All those local partners of Oxfam back in 1995 were very small rural organizations with a very minimum capacity and, and everything. And all the organizations now are very big with a huge capacity. In some cases, their microcredit fund is in sometimes million dollars microcredit funds and implementing uh, different development uh, projects of, of another million and million dollars. Now, when we come back to current discussion and current context, what I see, I see international organization without uh, taking anything. They are minimum risk taker. They want their investment very with, with compliance issues, with due diligence issues, with competitive bidding issues and whatnot. Everything limit small local organizations capacity building and small local organizations uh, leadership building. And, and that's why I feel like uh, uh, confused whether what we did and how we did and what now currently trying to de- do and are we circling in the same way will or not. So it's, 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 there is a not uh, straightforward answer of it, uh, this, but it is a experience, I would say. It's not the current localization is not a current issue. It has history. At least in Bangladesh, I can say it has history of 50, 50 years. And we need to learn from our experience back in 70s, 80s, and 90s, how these, uh, these big organizations build up. There has been some tension between the idea of, in the international sector, professionalization. You know, some have the view that if we professionalize, often this is in a very Western way of doing things, and perhaps it undermines local leadership. I guess I'm keen to understand how you feel in the future that local organisations who are already doing so much in Bangladesh, but how can they be really in the driver's seat and really leading, uh, you know, all of the responses that that are needed in Bangladesh? My organisation, we are very much, our, we have this strategic objective of developing professional uh, competency building of humanitarian area. And the problem here is that this is a new, very new area of professionalization. Humanitarian professionalization is just not following corporate bureaucrat or or any other technical area of professionalism. It is a new profession. It has to be different than corporate or bureaucratic professional. What we're doing from, from my perspective, what we are doing wrong we are just following the corporate and bureaucratic professionalization in this in this sector, and there I say professionalism is important for humanitarian sector, but it should be humanitarian professionalism. Is not just following corporate or bureaucratic professionalism. Yeah, it's it's a really tricky one, isn't it? I mean, who who's driving professionalism? Who implements professionalism? And is this something that is it donor driven? There is a you know some people would say that the the um, the due diligence piece, the compliance piece, uh, can be overwhelming for local organisations, and sometimes it's a barrier for them being able to be in the driver's seat. Well, with my experience with bilateral donors like FCDO, 
well they are also bound to from if when i see to them i feel their their kind of the accountability toward the uh, toward the taxpayers so it is important also here the key role can be taken by the international organizations they can come up with ideas without just or just this uh, passing through the all the compliance issues to the uh, local organization they should take risk they should take their part of role uh, here and and uh, and managing in a innovative way, uh, way that uh, that help the local organization to build the capacity and localization centering the voices of local actors is one of the reasons this show exists and it's clear we can't just center local knowledge during a humanitarian response we must also be elevating local voices in the knowledge products we produce before and after a humanitarian event this is crucial if we want to make real progress on localizing the sector and how we become more accountable to affected communities i'm beth eggleston and you're listening to i think you're on mute Join us next time for the final installment in our series looking at greening the humanitarian system.